Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retainer, and I am broadcasting from here in the Hamptons, a place I have lived for over 50 years. I've written 12 books about this place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small fishing villages to what it is today, a summer paradise for New Yorkers, artists, writers, musicians, movie stars, we have it all. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with the Hamptons' powerful people, but I will also introduce you to residents who contributed to our growth through the years, and you may not even have heard about them. Now I'd like to welcome to the show David Reynolds, author of wonderful historical books about the middle part of the 19th century. He's uh, written highly acclaimed books on John Brown, or Walt Whitman, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, he wrote a wonderful covering book on Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I just started reading his latest book, his newest book, which I saw had resulted in a uh, five-page story in The New Yorker, which I also read to get myself up to speed for this interview with you. And of course, I know you yourself. I've been to where you write and play piano. (laughs) Yeah. This book is called Abe, and um, it's about, uh, if I may introduce it for a moment rather than I'll turn it over to you. It's basically a very thorough examination of Abraham Lincoln, part of the culture of that era. Uh, as we move along and talking about it, uh, I have some questions that have come up in my mind already about it. But um, why don't you tell about the book and how long you've been working on it and also uh, what was the motivation for doing it? I know it's, it's a, your sort of magnum opus in some ways. Well, uh, you know, thanks for having me here, uh, Dan. I very much appreciate it. And I remember sitting right nearby uh, here with you discussing uh, Walt Whitman uh, once upon a time. I'm in the library in our house in Sagaponic, and this is actually where I wrote the book, Abe. It's called Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. And uh, it took me around six years to write it. At first, I wasn't going to write about Lincoln, but I gave my agent a book proposal on a different topic, and she sent it around to a lot of publishers, and they liked it. But one publisher said, why doesn't Reynolds run with this one paragraph uh, on Lincoln? I said, yeah, why don't I? I, It it would be kind of fun because I've spent my entire book writing career studying Lincoln's time, his culture, his era. So I said, well, why don't I use what I've discovered to reinterpret uh, Lincoln? So that began me on, oh, about five years of research and one or two years of writing uh, in which I place, in which I create a cultural biography, what I call a cultural biography, which is the idea that we're all shaped by our culture, um, both our immediate local culture, but also the larger national uh, spirit and culture. And uh, I mean, if I were going to write about Donald Trump, I think I would write not only about blue state, red state, but also about the soundbite culture, about reality TV, on and on. The, the, the kind of a culture that created uh, uh, the, the cult, so to speak. Uh, and in terms of, of, of Lincoln, I was interested in the popular humor, humor that he uh, um, that he read, the plays that he loved, the poems that he memorized. Uh, and all of these things were really absorbed into his psyche, uh, and they kind of shaped him. And he was someone, as uh, Emerson said, Emerson was a great 
writer, thinker of that era, he said, Lincoln's the one statesman who whose mind runs from the very, very highest reaches of culture to really the very lowest. I mean, he enjoyed uh, kind of dirty jokes and improper humor, but at the same time, he, he absolutely loved, loved to memorize Shakespeare, like the opera. Uh, he liked great poetry and everything, and kind of everything in between. He, as Emerson said, traversed the entire realm of experience from the highest to the point where even the even the dogs believed in him or something. That's that's the way Emerson phrases it. He was a wrestler, wasn't he, like his father? Yeah, his father. Now, Lincoln himself was quite tall and rather thin, but also very wiry and very quite muscular and kind of tightly muscular because he had spent so much time on the frontier. His father, Thomas, was much shorter. Well, he was in the high five, uh, maybe about 5'10" but extremely compact and, and also very, very muscular. Again, not they didn't work out with weights, so they just worked on the frontier. And um, the father, the toughest guy around in Kentucky, tried to beat the father um, in wrestling, and the father just handled the guy very easily. And from that point on, everybody else was really scared to even approach the father in terms of wrestling. And, and uh, Lincoln himself was uh, an excellent wrestler, he didn't believe, though, in what was called rough-and-tumble fighting, and, and that was, it was a very savage form of fighting on the frontier in which one of the points was to try to gouge out an eyeball from, from the opponent or, or at least to bite off an ear. Very vicious. Both his father and himself, they could have done that if they wanted to, but they avoided that. Um, I have a, actually, before we get into this further, a question about an event that was connected up with the Hamptons out here indirectly. One of the prior presidents was uh, Tyler. He had married a girl from East Hampton in the White House, and it was, he was also a Southerner. And at one point, he went up to Washington when Lincoln was president to try and negotiate a compromise of some kind with Lincoln. I haven't gotten up to that in the book yet, but I thought to ask you the Tell me about that a little bit and uh, why it failed. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the woman that he married was Gardner, and she was uh, related to Gardner's Island or something like that. Julia Gardner. Yeah, 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 Julia Gardner, right. Yeah, he, he approached Lincoln, and Lincoln was actually very kind. Uh, he wasn't hostile whatsoever to uh, Tyler, nor was he really to any Southerners per on a personal level. You know, he wasn't hostile, but he didn't want to reach any compromise in which uh, either the Confederate States of America would remain independent from the northern states or that they would not get rid of slavery. So he told, you know, Tyler this as he communicated as well to the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. He actually admired both of them as, as human beings. Uh, he said, uh, you know, I'm just not going to accept a disruption of the American Union, and uh, we would need to have slavery uh, terminated. So uh, that was kind of the end of the end of the conversation. Well, if this this was this during the war or prior to the war? That's a good question. I think it was uh, during the war. It was no good at that point. No. Try and save anything. Um, no. I've always thought of uh, Lincoln as being such a wonderful orator that I always wondered if it was possible that by some weird way, 
was he was he trying to that he might have missed out on the maybe people have thought this too that if he hadn't been president they might have worked out something where 20 years from that date you know slavery would be over or so i'm just sort of guessing at it but he was so principled in his thinking does that make any sense at all yeah well um when he was elected in 1861, in 1860, and he was going, going to assume office in March of 1861, between the time that he was elected and the time that he assumed office, those six months, um, seven southern states left the Union, and they formed the... Why? Because they believed that he was um, an abol abolitionist who would do away with slavery, but he was actually a moderate, and before the Civil War, before all, before all this happened in 1858, two years earlier, he had said, it might take 100 years, but I, I believe uh, slavery will disappear, disappear naturally. Through, and he didn't want war. He didn't want conflict. He wanted it to slowly disappear over time. And he even used the phrase, not war. You know, he really, really didn't want war. However, then he was elected and the southern states left. And between the time that he was elected and he assumed office, not only did uh, the seven, seven states leave and then four more would, would join them when he assumed office, making it 11 states, but there were about 200 efforts at compromise with the South. Unfortunately, the South would not just accept what Lincoln wanted. Lincoln said, you can keep slavery where it is already but we don't want you to, you to expand to the Western territories. Southerners basically wanted to expand it all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and a lot of them had thoughts about conquering Mexico and Cuba, spreading slavery down there too. There were many, many attempts at, you know, as I say, 200 attempts, but finally it happened that they attacked a federal fort in South Carolina in Fort, fort Sumter, the Confederates did. And at that point, it was it was civil war, so all compromise was uh, at an end at that point. What is uh, unique about the book you've written? There have been so many written about Lincoln, and it's getting such tremendous attention in people who've in the literary field today. It's quite remarkable. What's different is that you can read. There have been more than sixteen thousand books written on Lincoln, and a lot of them are. Excellent. They're, they're, they're very good. A lot of the biographies are uh, very, very good. Um, and one of the best one, ones is uh, David Donald's uh, Lincoln, which came out in the 90s, and it's still very, very good. But Donald is the first to admit in his introduction, he said, I'm trying to see Lincoln from his point of view. As a matter of fact, he was the least prepared president to ever enter the presidency because he had less than one year of schooling, primary schooling, virtually no education, not much experience and all of that. I say, well, that's true if you just look at the facts of his life. But if you look at the way he interacted with his culture, which, as I mentioned earlier, was very, very comprehensively. And so his education was kind of a daily thing for him. He was always observing everything uh, on the law circuit. The law circuit, he was traveling around Illinois uh, into various towns. He would stop, ask a farmer, how does that tractor work? And, you know, what, what's the machinery of that tractor? Or he would say, can you tell me about your cows? Always feeding his mind. And he's the only president that has a patent to an invention. It was a way of lifting boats, river boats, over shallow places 
through inflatable um, balloons underneath it. Nothing ever came of it, but still he did file the patent and he made a model of it and everything. He was extremely sort of curious, was so much into poetry and drama. Actually, that got him killed in a way because he, uh, everyone said you shouldn't go to the theater tonight. And he went uh, on April 14th and he was shot by an actor, uh, John Wilkes Booth. He was so much into that on April 9th, 1865, when Lee surrendered to Grant in Appomattox courthouse. Lincoln was on a boat going from Virginia to Washington, and he was surrounded by government officials that were just jumping up and down, I think, as anybody would be. It's like, mission accomplished, and, you know, this is just fabulous, and we won the war. But Lincoln said, no, no, no. I And he spent hours reading Shakespeare, Shakespeare and poetry out loud. He didn't even think about winning the war because he was reading poems about death and dying because 750,000 Americans had died uh, under his watch during the Civil War, 750,000. And his mind was really at that point with, with them, with the fallen. It kind of shows his, uh, his uh, sensitivity to culture, his use of poetry and Shakespeare to deepen his own thinking about such an important issue as, as death, particularly the death that was going on all around him during the Civil War. One of the things I've read was that he was, uh, uh, on his father's side, he was from Kentucky, and his mother's side was from Massachusetts. Did I get that right, or is it the other way around? Yeah, it's the other way around. Originally, um, he, uh, on his father's side, he was from early Massachusetts, his uh, Great, great, his like ninth great grandfather, Samuel Lincoln, uh, came over in 1637 and was part of the Puritan migration. He was a Puritan New Englander. And on his mother's side, his mother was illegitimate. And so his, he, he, he knew that he had a uh, grandfather or great grandfather who was a Virginia planter, a planter from Virginia, who was known as kind of a cavalier. So he thought there were the Puritans versus the cavaliers. And a lot of people said that Lincoln brought together those two strains uh, from his father's, his, uh, father's side, the kind of Puritan element, and from his mother's side, the kind of Cavalier or Virginia element. And to some degree, I think that's true because the Cavaliers were known for a sense of honor and all of that, even though, of course, they were slaveholders, but still, I mean, they, 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 the sense of sort of honor. And Lincoln really had a sense of honor and integrity. But at the same time, from the Puritan side, there was this kind of moral uh, moral point of view uh, applied to social issues. And he, he at the same time, had, had an extremely moral um, standpoint towards slavery. And he said, the difference between me and my opponents is that I believe that slavery is immoral. It's, it, it's wrong. But he had such honor and, and integrity that he, he was indeed quite honest. And <laughs> once he was actually in bed with a, a, a sex worker, a woman who was a sex worker, and, you know, they had both taken off their clothing. And uh, Lincoln gets into bed with her, and he's ready. This is before he was married. And he gets into bed with her, and um, he said, oh, how much do you charge? And she said, um, $5. He said, oh, gosh, I only have $3. And she said, no, 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 I'll, I'll let, let you go on credit. You know, I'll pay later. But he said, no, no, I'm, that's not the way I work. He said, and so he put on his trousers and he left. But his, his sense of, of uh, whatever, honor or integrity, even went that far that, nope. I, 
<laughs> well, he also he also didn't he also claim it when he was asked that he was a Quaker. Yeah, he didn't have any Quaker background, but he kind of told a little fib. Um, now, one of his great great grandparents had married a, a Quaker woman named Rebecca Flower, Flowers. He used to say, "Oh, I come from Quaker stock." And they went from Pennsylvania to Virginia and then Kentucky. But actually, and all his biographers at that time um, said that he was from Quaker stock. But it was very uh, useful to him politically to say he was from Quaker stock. Why? The Quakers, Quakers were known as pacifists, as very gentle people. Now, it's true they opposed slavery, and yet Southerners actually liked Quakers because they knew that Quakers were not going to go to war over slavery. So the, the Southerners kind of tolerated the Quakers and the Northerners. Uh, the Quakers were kind of a buffer between the North and the South. So it was very political of him to kind of build up this Quaker identity. But he's well-deserved as our greatest president. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Because he learned some lessons in life, and he really did learn learn from them. When he was in his, uh, when he was a youngster in his twenties, he used rather sensational rhetoric. He went through what we might call a, a Trump phase when he was really, really attacking his political enemies. However, that got him into trouble, into a duel with a, an opponent who was offended, offended. And unfortunately, the duel didn't come off. Um, it was going to be a duel of swords, huge, long swords, and Lincoln didn't know. The guy he uh, was opposed to was very short, five foot seven or something like that. I, he said, I can split this guy from head to foot. He didn't realize the guy had been a fencing inst instructor <laughs> in Canada and had learned, he, he had been trained in sword, you know, wielding a sword is not just flailing away at people. It's, it's also, you know, a little, anyway, he lived. And from that incident and from other incidents, he learned how to moderate his rhetoric and even his political position so that even though he lived in the most divided time in our history, he knew how to uh, stay right in the center so as not to inflame the animosities on both sides, so as not to throw gasoline onto the fire of political division ever. Uh, he, he, he just didn't do that. He avoided that from that, uh, that point on. Later in the book, as you'll see, he identified with Blondin, who was this tight tightrope walker across Niagara Falls and who would carry a man on his back across Niagara Falls. And, and Lincoln said, I'm just like Blondin, staying right in the middle, trying not to inflame this highly uh, divisive time even further. So it's really his steadying influence at the same time that he didn't take his eye off the ball of trying to repair the union and get rid of slavery too. So yeah, no, he was, uh, he deserves. And in all, all the polls by historians since uh, 1945, he's either number, and there have been 50 polls, he's either number one, he, the average is number one, but he's always in the top three and the average is, is number one among uh, trained historians, yeah. What are you going to uh, write about after this? Have you thought about it? I've thought about it a little bit. I'm descended from, on both my mother and father's side, from 22 uh, Mayflower people, and so I'm kind of thinking, and my agent wants me to pursue this, 
to sort of take these people and say, well, what they, what were they really like? What were their, um, it's a little hard because they lived back in the 17th century and so forth. And what was their long-term effect on America and so forth? So I'm, I'm kind of working on that a little bit, although I, I've written a, the beginning of a proposal and my publisher wants to see it and everything, but I just, I have to reach a point where I, I kind of feel comfortable about it. But, you know, I'm, I'm toying with that. Some of the country's great writers have found the Hamptons to be very much a place to work. And apparently you did too, and I kind of wondered why, what you thought of it and why you chose Sagapana. Yeah, my, my, my wife and her brother had bought this farmland in, in Sagapana back in the 70s when uh, there were the only house around here, talking about writers, was the little cottage of Truman Capote at the time. And, <laughs> and I don't know if Vonnegut was here yet or not, Kurt, but, but uh, fairly soon, as you know, Kurt Vonnegut came, you know, uh, came near, near here. And I think for artists, for writers, for musicians, uh, it's a very creative place to be. I think largely, uh, at least in my experience, because there's a certain, certain peacefulness, the sky, the o- ocean, uh, the proximity to the beach, uh, and you seem to kind of, uh, and I like this very much because I was raised in New England, and I lived right on Narragansett Bay in a reconstructed lighthouse. So I grew up in a kind of a very peaceful um, situation surrounded by nature. And in a, it's not quite the same, but it, it's almost the same out here. And it is true that it gets very busy in, in the summer and all of that. And it's been especially busy, I think, during COVID because a lot of New Yorkers have come out, come out here. But that's perfectly fine, too. There's a certain stimulate. There's a reason why John Irving was here for a while and Vonnegut and um, Joseph Keller and on and on. You know, a lot of writers and, and poets and artists and so forth have, have come out here. It's just it's a wonderful. And I have friends who are artists and friends who are writers. And, and you know, it's, it, it just makes a very stimulating environment. But this room where I uh, wrote it, I'm surrounded by books, too. And that's sort of an inspiration just to look up and, and look at these books. And to me, that's a huge inspiration. So, yeah. I know that you stop when you work sometimes and then go to the piano. Yeah, I sometimes do. Um, Lately, I haven't done that as often as I should. I sometimes either go to the piano or the guitar because I uh, earned my way through grad school by playing in a piano bar. Now, this was not a fancy piano bar or anything like that. It was, these were little honky-tonks in California, so don't get any ideas. But, yeah, you know, I, I just played background piano, and I also um, played guitar and sang and stuff like that. And I would like to return to that more often. I used to do that a lot more than I do now. I, I had a little arthritis during the summer, but I think I'm kind of over that now. So I think I can kind of get back to it. But usually if I'm between books, which I am now, I usually kind of go into my music. And I've been thinking about going to my music a little more just to uh, just because I think uh, it's fun to have a sort of a creative, not really creative, but just sort of an expressive outlet. You know, it's very kind of expressive. I am a professor at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and um, I'm a member both of the history program and the English program and the biography program. So, uh, I but I teach now, of course, by Zoom, and I taught by Zoom. I'll probably teach by Zoom next semester too. So yeah, but most everyone is teaching by Zoom, at least on the professor level. And uh, I will also be in to see you tonight when you have your book launch. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that should be fun, and. Uh, 
I'm having a dialogue with uh, Jim Oakes, James Oakes, who uh, he's a guy I respect a lot. He's the author of uh, many books on the Civil War, and uh, he's a colleague of mine at the Graduate Center, and he's also a wonderful guy and everything like that, very intelligent. He's, he's read the book and was so nice to read the book when it was a manuscript. So, yeah, it should be fun. Thank you for coming, David Reynolds. Looking forward to finishing your book which I actually cut into a reading of a book I'm doing on uh, Teddy Roosevelt, but <laughs> I thought more interesting. And so far, it certainly is. We're very beautifully written. And congratulations. Thank you very much, Dan. And it's always wonderful to see you, to read your paper and your books. Thank you very much for having me.